Hello and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism, a podcast exploring how we can best maintain a sense of energy, inspiration, and wakefulness while dealing with the unique stressors of this strange and potent time. My name is Brett Kane, and I'll be your host on this journey, and I think it's safe to say that we all kind of know we're getting the raw deal when it comes to getting accurate information from the news, right? Well, I personally think that this is a huge issue and can actually be an impediment on our ability to show up for our lives in a clear and cognizant way. Luckily, I'm not the only one who feels this. Today's guest is University of Massachusetts Amherst professor Allison Butler. Allison's educational focus is on critical media literacy, which is a field of study that equips students with the tools to better dissect and understand the media they consume. Some topics this explores are how power structures influence the information we receive to how profit can change what gets highlighted in the stories that we hear. In this conversation, we not only cover some of those important aspects, but also how we can form a healthier and more sustainable relationship with the media in all its forms. Allison's also recently had her newest book published, The Media in Me, A Guide to Critical Media Literacy. And it's a book geared towards a younger audience to help them develop the tools for navigating the media ecosystem with more discernment and skill. From what I hear, it's a great primer, not just for the younger audiences, but also anyone who's interested in understanding this complex and important aspect of our society. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. If you want to stay plugged in with Allison's work, I highly encourage you to check out her book. You can find that wherever you get your books. And also consider listening to some other podcast episodes she's done. She has a very wide repertoire of topics that she talks about uh, all under this umbrella and after listening to a few I've been informed and I found them to be really useful in my perception of the media. Uh, If you want to support this show uh, consider heading on over to patreon.com slash 21st century vitalism and becoming a patron. It helps me keep the lights on and continue bringing you really exceptional guests Uh, You can also, if you don't want to give any money, uh, head over to YouTube, subscribe, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and it really helps to share the episode as well. If you learn something from this, giving some sort of energy in reciprocation is much, much, much appreciated uh, in this digital ecosystem. So thank you so much for tuning in. Without further ado, please sit back, drink some tea, do some stretches, and most importantly, open your heart for Allison Butler. Okay, so the train has now left the station. Allison, hello and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism. Thank you so much for coming on today. How are we uh, doing landing here? Uh, thank you for having me. I'm doing great. It's good to be here. Good. I'm glad to hear it. So I thought a great place to start would be to just acknowledge the elephant in the room and that uh, most Americans today do not trust media. I think there's a generalized sense in the atmosphere of misinformation, misdirection, things getting put in focus and other things being ignored. Generally, most people I talk to are very, if not distrustful, like actively uh, resentful <laughs> towards media conglomerations, and yet we're totally reliant on them for orienting in the world. Uh, it's this catch-22. It's like if you don't stay informed, you're going to miss out, but if you stay informed, 
how can you maintain uh, a positive outlook? <laughs> uh, so with that framework, what exactly is media literacy and how can it help us orient in this um, sometimes deceptive landscape? Yeah, absolutely. I'd only, um, I'd only provide a small edit to that sentence and take out the sometimes, right? We live in a, we live in a pretty deceptive landscape. Um, if, if we're looking in a particular direction. And that's exactly what media literacy is going to do, is it's going to help us look in a different direction. Uh, if we think about media literacy, it is the ability to access, analyze, and produce a variety of media. That's the American definition. comes to us from uh, about 1992, 1993, when a group of scholars met to talk about how like wow there I mean this was the 90s right there seemed to be a lot of media out there particularly um, attractive to our our younger citizens to our children and to our teenagers and they deserve to have more formal knowledge and more formal education about it so that's kind of how media literacy comes to the United States um, by the way we were we were pretty behind the times it had gotten to Canada Australia and especially the UK much much earlier uh, the work that I do we add in a little bit of a different word we add in you know critical media literacy at the beginning and part of what we're doing is in addition to that ability to access analyze and produce a variety of media we want to look at the behind the scenes we want to do interrogations and examinations of power so to be critical is not about to dislike um, I think you're right I think we live in deceptive times. Uh, maybe we've always lived in deceptive times. Uh, I think you're right that many people are distrustful of the media. That could be one of those not exactly haha funny, but still sort of funny connections between um, our political polar opposites, that both the left and the right are distrustful of the media, but maybe for different reasons. And that could potentially be a way, you know, of bringing folks together. Uh, what critical media literacy does, though, is it it's not, like I said, it's not about dislike. It's about taking a step back, taking a step away from that which we are, for the most part, just so unbelievably embroiled, right? We, it is incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to get through a day without engaging in some form of media. I mean, here you and I are using technology to be able to have this conversation, right? That's, that is the world that we live in. But to the best of our ability to take a step back, to look at all of our texts, to look at these corporations from a distance, from a critical distance, to look at them as multidimensional things in our world, and how can we then understand them from different positions. Uh, one thing I tell my students all the time, um, is that it doesn't it's not about media bashing although we can do that and we could probably have a little bit of fun with that uh, because we do get joy we do get pleasure certainly during covid it might have been the time the only way that we got human connection um, you know if we were trying to be sort of extra safe and responsible uh, so it's not about oh this is all going to be horrible and everybody has to hate it when we're done with this conversation it's more about trying to understand it more thoroughly more fully more multi-dimensionally uh, and then maybe if at all possible maybe make change maybe make some changes in the way that you think maybe make some changes in your actions uh, maybe you make bigger changes and you try and get corporations to change what they're doing uh, but it starts with that level of awareness and that understanding that which we spend so much time we often have so little knowledge about yeah and i think there's something about 
really contemplating the role that media has in our cognition is something that really fascinates me because it, it literally it's painting the the colors of how you view your world yes. you know somebody invests a lot of time in watching fox news they're gonna have a very different fundamental perspective on the way life operates as somebody who watches say msnbc right. and some people who might feel like that's like an inconsequential thing like oh we're all seeing the same thing it, it changes the way you interact with your neighbor it changes the way your nervous system regulates itself when confronted with certain ideas and it conditions us it primes us for frankly, a lot of aggression if you're tuning into the wrong sources you know so is that kind of a part of that is like understanding the way that it affects our perceptions as well as absolutely absolutely i mean a couple of key words that you used in there were that idea of like framing and um uh, sort of building our perceptions, right? Yeah, if you're somebody who only watches Fox News, it's hard to imagine that there would be other perspectives out there, right? Even even before we get into like criticizing the content of Fox News, which we could do for days, right? But at the same time, we can criticize the context, the the content of MSNBC, of CNN, of the broadcast networks, etc. But if that's the only outlet that you're getting any one of those, then you have a limited worldview. Uh, if you're only getting information about your community, about the nation, about the globe from one source, then you're getting limited information. And one thing that I think we all have to remember, even if I think my news source is better and more informative and uh, provides me with the correct information, if I'm only going to that one source, I'm getting limited information, right? Uh, we have to remember that in the United States, the vast majority of our media come to us from private for-profit corporations. Their number one goal within our capitalist system is profit. That's their job. That's what advertising is. Advertising gets profit. If you and I happen to be entertained or informed along the way, if we learn about the weather or the traffic or the state of, you know, the election or whatever's happening around the globe, that is secondary to the corporation's profit. Now, we could spend a lot of time on the value judgment of that. Um, and we could certainly spend a lot of, t of time on the value judgment of capitalism and what it means to be in a capitalist system and whether or not there might be a different system that might organize things differently. But it is where we live. So we need to understand that our media, their primary goal is profit. And again, as I said, if you and I get entertained or informed along the way, great. But the number one thing is profit. And so even if somebody feels like they are getting well informed by something like Fox News, don't forget that Fox News' number one profit, our number one goal, excuse me, is profit. And Fox News is actually quite adept at that. Um, one of the things that Fox News did to build itself as a news network was um, it did not hire, as a network, they did not hire reporters. They did not hire journalists. They did not put people on location in international places because all of that is really expensive. And hiring a journalist, one presumes you're hiring somebody and paying them for a, 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 an, their education, their professional training, their academic and professional training. If you send a journalist to a site, like a hot site where news is happening, 
that's expensive. You're paying not only for the equipment, you're paying for the human labor, you're probably paying hotel and food and all that sort of stuff. That's going to cut down on profit. What Fox News does is they hire pundits. They hire people who have opinions. They can maybe bring them to New York or maybe just, you know, bring them in digitally. These folks aren't trained as reporters. They aren't trained as journalists, nor do they pretend to be. Even with whatever Fox pays them for participating, it's going to be significantly less than sending somebody on site or doing investigative journalism. That's profit. Now, yeah. those folks, maybe some of maybe some of the listeners or the watchers or the readers or whatever agree with those positions. Okay, that's that's a different level of conversation. But let's not forget to look at the structure. Let's not forget to look at the system that makes that information possible. Yeah. I think a problem with this is a lot of people, they can hear what you're saying and they're like, okay, so obviously everything is profit um, focused, but at the same time, like they're still providing information and it's like, what about that information? You know, like in what ways is the information that's being disseminated? How is that itself affected by this profit motive? Are there certain characteristics of like filters that it has to go through to maintain a certain kind of narrative or how is the information itself kind of used in that scheme yeah i mean i think what we would have to do there is if we if we wanted to dig into that if we wanted to do that access and analysis part is we'd have to look at um look at what what it is that we're examining, what's the story that we're looking at, or maybe the story that we're looking for, and then kind of climb that ladder, climb the ladder of abstraction. Who's the author, reporter, journalist, pundit, etc.? Um, why is this story being told right now? Uh, who's in what source and by what method? Because if you get a if you get a newspaper delivered to you that comes to your doorstep or the bottom of your driveway first thing in the morning, but if you're reading a digital newspaper, that can get updated throughout the day. That doesn't necessarily mean that the news has changed dramatically throughout the day, but it can certainly give us that feeling of, I need to check in because this, this could constantly be updated. And then we have to look at that corporate owner, right? We can't forget that corporate owner. Um, and in terms of that idea of framing, I think a pretty obvious example is Jeff Bezos, right? Jeff Bezos owns um, Amazon, which is the largest, one of the largest landlords on the internet, if you will. Uh, he owns Whole Foods. So your grocery shopping, high-end grocery shopping, but your grocery shopping can now be linked with Amazon. Uh, he also owns the Washington Post. Um, so one thing that you will probably never see in the Washington Post, I actually grew up outside of D.C. I still go there a lot for family visits. I see the Washington Post every once in a while, you know, when I'm visiting there. One thing you'll never see is anything critical, deeply critical of Jeff Bezos or Amazon or Whole Foods unless there is a component to it that's talking about how they're going to solve a problem. There might be a problem and here's how they're going to solve it. Uh, you'll never see anything in the Washington Post critical of Amazon or Whole Foods labor practices. Um, you won't get any like uh, critiques of their anti-union work because the owner is Jeff Bezos, right? So we want to think of, this is one of the reasons why those of us in critical media literacy really spend a lot of time looking behind the scenes, um, looking at ownership, looking at ownership production and distribution is we can't fully thoroughly understand the content, what most of us are paying attention to, 
we can't fully thoroughly understand that without looking at that that ownership and that framing by initially by ownership yeah so i'm gonna just go ahead and assume that that carries water for even all the main legacy media outlets something like cnn which kind of positions itself as like the objective like they've tried to get that niche of like we are the authoritative news and like that's just all we do we don't have bias um yeah. Well, let's not forget that journalism, I have a lot to say about CNN. Let's not forget, though, that journalism, one of the tenets of journalism is striving for objectivity, right? Don't for, We can't forget that word striving. We, we are humans. We are subjective bodies. We show up in one place and we don't show up in another. We, we pay attention to one thing, which means we're not paying attention to another. Journalism itself isn't objective full stop and therefore good full stop it's a striving for objectivity but let's let's spend a minute on cnn um i don't know if you've paid attention in the past week or so uh don lemon who's one of the cnn morning show hosts he made a comment i believe it was last thursday uh it was, yeah, it was February 16th. He was talking, this was right after Nikki Haley announced her presidential uh, bid. She's going to run for president in 2024. And he made a comment in the morning show with his co-hosts uh, saying that he was commenting on her comment about competency tests. And he said to his credit that he was uncomfortable talking about age and then started talking about how women are past their prime and women are in their prime in their twenties, thirties, and forties, maybe their forties. Uh, and then he followed up as if this wasn't problematic enough. He followed up by saying, I'm just the messenger. Google it. It's a fact. Well, let's have a little chat about that, right? We talk about CNN who's trying to position itself as the quote unquote objective, but you have age old tropes of misogyny. You have a man talking over two women. You have a man determining that a woman's worth via Google is in her twenties, thirties, and forties. He uses the word fact. He says, Google it. He says, don't blame me. I'm just the messenger. So I, I got a little upset about this and sort of put on my critical media literacy cap, which I'm pretty much always wearing. Uh, <laughs> and I, I wrote an op-ed that, um, ended up in, in Ms. Magazine, which was, which which was just a real honor about like, John, buddy, like stop talking over women. This is a form of misogyny. You're talking over women. You're equating women's worth with their age. This is a problem, right? And I got a ton of feedback from folks that were like, thank you so much. I'm so tired of this. I hate this news banter that these like the, they just talk over each other and then you're not actually listening to what they're saying he got a lot of pushback not just from me and not just from ms magazine and so he issued an apology except it wasn't really an apology because what he said was i'm sorry i didn't mean to offend i didn't mean to hurt well that's not an apology right an apology is i'm sorry i offended i hurt I messed up. So once again, we're, we're calling on these misogynistic tropes where it's, it's a blaming the victim. You felt offended. Therefore I should apologize. You felt hurt. Therefore I should, but it's really all about you. Right. Um, so the follow-up piece that I wrote was just about how like 
we need to stop judging women by their age. We need to stop making fake apologies. This needs to stop being on news programs. And I get it that the morning programs aren't the like hard news. It's the sort of wake you up with your coffee, kind of get you moving into your day. But when we operate in a system, when you and I as viewers, as listeners, when we live in the system that makes that on some level okay, then that's how we begin to see the world. And that's how we begin to see how the world operates. And again, the feedback that I've gotten is, I mean, just emails, constant emails from folks saying, thank you so much for addressing this. These are experiences that I've had. I'm so tired of being judged by my age. I'm so tired of being judged by the color of my skin. People are angry about this. Don Lemon has apparently gone to sensitivity training I'm not sure. I think that's a, a public relations term for we're reconsidering his contract. Um, but it, it, with a national platform, we have just made, continued to make, continued to, to dig into misogyny and censorship of women um, in the name of news and in the name of striving to be objective. Yeah, I think this idea was put forward by Noam Chomsky in Manufacturing Consent, which is my main uh, entryway into this kind of work. But his idea of mass media was that it was uh, an educational tool that essentially is put forth by kind of like the, the ruling class, if you will, to instill a sense of shared value, a sense of shared uh, way of viewing the world. So with what you're saying, you know, I'm sure, I don't know really too, I have never seen a single segment by Don Lemon, but I do know <laughs> he's kind of like, he's in that role of he's one of like their, their top contributors. And what I've heard described him as uh, was that whether or not he really is fully misogynist, he, he just has low IQ, <laughs> is <laughs> what I've heard is he, he like set a gaffe that ended up, but I think that, that just kind of speaks to the the, what we're really saying is that the people who are often put in these punditry positions, they're not actual reporters. They're not actually, con they don't have conviction to purvey the truth. They're just kind of mouths, they're mouthpieces for an agenda that kind of gets pushed down from up above. Mm -hmm. So even with that, you know, that was something I was thinking about. It's like there's so many people in the media sphere that have these, these pundits and like, do they all recognize that they are kind of just purveyors of somebody else's ideology or is there some sense of genuine uh desire to be um ethical in this or like from your study of this with all of these experts that get brought on who again they're just rented mouths that can speak confidently about things a lot of the times they're just blatantly wrong or misdirecting you know, I, I don't want to throw away an entire cast of people, but like it, that's where a lot of people direct their anger when they see news and they're like, oh, these sons of bitches are lying to us again. <laughs> and so like with the experts and with the pundits, like how does that structure work? Well, I mean, I think what we're what we're ultimately looking at is the sort of exhausting view of multiple layers of bureaucracy. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, to your question about like, do these folks know that this is what they're doing? Is there any ethical consideration? I would imagine and I'm, I'm kind of making this up as I go along, because none of these folks, none of these, you know, um, major network pundits or or anchors are, are 
giving me any like backroom secret deal information, right? Um, but just sort of looking at it across the landscape, you know, you have a corporate culture, you have a corporate structure that has, for lack of a better term, for lack of a, a jargon term, but let's use a little sort of, you know, they have a vibe. Right. Um, and so they fit that vibe. If there is somebody on Fox News who isn't yelling, it doesn't fit their vibe. Right. Their vibe is to be very yelling. And that's that's their brand. That's their vibe. That's their brand. Kind of however we want to we want to name this. Um, I would imagine that as you maybe somebody is like starting to get into it. We all have our ideals. We have our goals. We have our our mission. And then we face the corporation or we face the bureaucracy and like what can we do within this space how can we operate within this space and I sound like uh, you know I, I keep coming back to this but it's true it's about profit right um, when we think about something like um, you know the more yelling or the bigger the headline or the the wackier the headline that's clickbait Right. And that gets our eyeballs onto advertisements. Um, you know, I prior to this uh, gaffe that he made last week, uh, I had never watched Don Lemon either. And actually somebody sent me the clip. I'm not a, I'm just not a morning news show watcher. That's just sort of not how I start my day. Um, but one thing that I have to consider is that by watching that clip and I watched it repeatedly, I've actually contributed in my own way to that because it, it adds to my digital footprint, right? I've now clicked on that link enough times, watched it enough times that I've sent information about my algorithm. So I think what we're looking at is a real, it's, it's, and I, I don't want to blame the user in any way, shape or form, but we are all contributing to this, right? So, you know, is there, is there, are there ethical considerations? Of course there are ethical considerations, but do my ethical considerations, when, when those back into the corporate consideration, kind of who wins, right? Which one takes precedence? Um, there's also editing, there's um, reframing of things, right? You can take, I mean, that's kind of what I did with my work was took the Don Lemon quote and reframed it as looking at this as censorship and misogyny um, of women, uh, particularly women of a certain age. Um, so, you know, once we edit something, once we reframe it, um, once we tell the story with like righteous indignation or we laugh at the story, we're all contributing to those messages. Uh, and so how are we operating within that? Um, and, you know, when we're talking about self, there is also that idea that if I'm going to get paid a lot of money to be on one of these big news channels, is that going to shift my ethical stance? That could yeah. be a pretty sweet paycheck. And we can't forget about that, too. It's not just the corporation's desire for profit. It's folks who are going to get paid to share their information. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of like this. I think it's an important frame that even in like the outraged response, which a lot of it is probably very justified, it still adds to the cacophony of noise surrounding yes. an event, which still feeds energy and then creates more feedback. And then it just anchors that entity, the corporate media entity, as the thing which is setting the narrative. Right. I mean, let's look at if we are clicking on something, if we are, I, I, again, I say this stuff to my class all the time. We watch a lot of stuff or read a lot of stuff or listen to a lot of stuff in my classes of that we are deeply, deeply critical of that. We are not walking away from going, yeah, that was great. We're walking away from it going, that's really problematic. But at the end of the day, 
I, I usually bring my computer and will use my subscriptions. I don't want to add to my students' digital footprint. But at the end of the day, Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime or YouTube now knows that I've watched this three, four, five times. I like to watch stuff in class like a little bit on repeat so that they can hear it and see it and really kind of get, get a really better understanding of it than watching it just once quickly. Um, so now I've added to my digital footprint and Netflix doesn't particularly care or any of them care if I like it. Um, what they see is that I've watched it four times. That must mean I like it. It doesn't, of course, mean that I like it, but we are often doing that. If we are liking or disliking something, right, if we're rage watching something and we share it with our, you know, circles, really the background information of that, the algorithm of that is that we've shared it. And that's clicking and that gets more advertising dollars. So even when we are being critical of something in a digital realm, we're still adding to its, um, adding to its coffers as it were. Yeah. So I, I've heard you say this in a prior interview when I was researching you and you just said it again with the digital footprint. And this is something I think a lot of people maybe have like a vague understanding of, but don't really understand the full implication of it. Uh, could you go into that a little bit and how that might uh, affect the entire landscape and our own personal lives? Sure, sure. So if we're doing, okay, so operating under the assumption that we spend most of our media time with digital media, either on our computers, on our smartphones, on our smart TVs, in our cars, that sort of thing, right? Um, unless you're somebody that goes to a bookstore and pays cash or gets a paper newspaper uh, and doesn't pay for it with a credit card. I'm not even sure if you could do that these days. <laughs> We're constantly adding to our digital footprint, right? They are probably immeasurable. Um, so footprint might not really be the right word to use anymore. But anything that we do online, anything that we click on, um, anything that we subscribe to, they have our data. Um, if we are emailing using any major email server, uh, everything that we do, all of the Zooming that we've done in the past three years from COVID, all of that is sending lots of tiny little bits and bytes of information about us. And it is determining, to some extent, our likes and our dislikes. Again, the quantity of stuff, it's hard to do. Just because something is delivered to us doesn't mean that we like it. Um, and any one of us that has ever fallen asleep in front of the television doesn't mean that we've actually watched it, right? Um, but there it is. Uh, and so it starts to, the, the algorithm starts to uh, specify an idea of who we are. And so therefore, we're going to get more pings and more advertisements and more suggestions of stuff that this algorithm presumes that we like. Um Certainly, I think one of the most obvious examples that probably any single one of us can can recognize is that if we've, for example, gone online to make a hotel reservation, right? We're going to go on a vacation. We're going to go on a work trip. We make a hotel reservation. We move on from making that hotel reservation. Maybe we log into our social media. Maybe we go to our newspaper that we have a tab open for. And lo and behold, there's an advertisement for that very hotel, right? And 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 I think we can have hundreds at this point, thousands of stories about how that's, that's cropped up. Um, and then it crops up nearly instantaneously, right? I mean, it doesn't, it's not even a question of time. It's, it's nearly instantaneous. So that's how our digital footprint builds. There is a certain level, again, part of critical media literacy is we don't, um, we don't want to think of anything as 
wholly bad or wholly good for that matter. Things are really, really complicated um, and super duper complex and probably more complex than many of us understand or, or have the ability to understand because a lot of this stuff is, you know, it's, it's truly deeply within the coding. And unless you are a coder, that might feel like a foreign language. So we kind of have to approach it in a way that many of us who aren't coders can understand it, right? So that algorithm has made a determination about who we are. Uh, some of that is going to be really convenient because we can log into Netflix or Hulu or whatever our streaming services are, and there's that show that we wanted to watch. That's great. Look at that. But then it's like, hmm, wait a minute, what are they thinking of me, right? We also can't forget, I think especially these days as we move into... Um, a more sophisticated AI, particularly chat GPT, any of us involved in education, we have certainly been told to be deeply concerned about chat GPT, uh, is we can tend to forget that all of this stuff is built by humans. The algorithm is built by humans. Chat GPT is, is train, we as humans train AI. Like all of the stuff that we do digitally trains AI. So we're actually laboring a great deal uh, for our own convenience um, and for our own activities. So again, the, the easiest way, I think, the shortest way to explain it is anything we do digitally builds our footprint. So much so that I don't think footprint is probably the right word to use anymore because mm -hmm. most of us have probably aged out of being able to even see the the frame of said footprint right uh and and it does feel like we can therefore give the machine like some early 80s you know action adventure horror films we can give the machine all this power let's not forget that the information put into the machine is put in by humans and so therefore the information that comes out of the machine carries with it all of our human foibles all of the stuff that can come out carries with it the racism the sexism the classism the ableism that gets built into it by humans wow so with this digital footprint i've always considered it and i don't really know the behind the scenes of it but i always thought it was kind of like you get a profile generated of you based on all of that is that are there multiple footprints uh, amongst different companies or is there like one footprint that they all kind of draw from or how does that get it's never it's so it's never you particularly brett it's never me particularly allison right we kind of go into these uh, boxes we go into these buckets we are categories um we are a, a code we are an item of code um and then we fit into certain categories or buckets or so on and so forth so it's not so much about the the system knowing what you as a human being did today it's what your digital trail says right and and it's going to be in different places so it's whatever your email provider is or whatever you know your uh, web browser is it's where you've used your credit card um, it's what credit card you have it's whatever social media you're on uh, that chances are you didn't because most of us don't read the terms of service that that you've agreed to, right? Uh, and so all of that is just, it, it, there's no way, I think if you went through like the reams of data, you wouldn't necessarily find your person. 
I wouldn't necessarily find my person. That would that would be a lot, right? But it's it's the idea of how we fit into this. So it's it's telling a story about us, and we are in some ways giving it that data to tell the story through our actions. Yeah. And it feeds us back what it again this mysterious it the algorithm feeds us back what based on all of that data is presumed that we like so so here, here's a an exact example of something that i tried to work against the algorithm and it was tricky <laughs> i teach a class called media and education in the fall semester uh, and I usually save a day particularly when it's an election year I'll save a day where I don't put their readings up I like to have all their readings, everything organized before the start of the semester. But I always save a day when it's every two years, I guess, um, where I say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put these readings up the last minute because we're just going to look at some current events about the, the election and what is being said about education, sort of connecting those together. And I want it to be current events. So it's usually like two or three days before the class that I'll go online and find who, which candidate is saying what about education and try and get like different views about it. So many, many moons ago at this point, um, I was looking up stuff on Betsy DeVos, who's the former secretary of education. Uh, and I wanted to find some stuff to share with my students about here's the, the, the biggest single voice in education in the nation right before election day, what is being said. It also happened that that summer, previous to this and into the fall, I had written a book about um, media literacy and education. And so I had spent a lot of time reading about public schooling and reading about Betsy DeVos and the, in my estimation, problem with her view on public schooling. So that's there in my computer. It's there in my algorithm. I go online to find an article. No problem. Two seconds, I find an article deeply critical of Betsy DeVos. Great. There's my one. I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. I can't get anything that is in favor of Betsy DeVos. Now, there was a, you know, kind of a moral high ground part of me that was like, see, <laughs> she is problematic. But I was like, that's not fair to my students. I can't, I can't do that to my students. They deserve to see as many sides of this as they can. I looked up right-wing conservative presses, couldn't find anything. Finally, I typed into the search engine, Betsy DeVos is the greatest human being on the planet. <laughs> and that was how I finally got something that was an article in favor of her policies. My digital footprint, my algorithm was so strong based on clearly just my regular everyday reading, the book that I had been researching, all this kind of stuff. And that in some ways became the topic of our conversation in, in our class, which is, wait a minute, how do we learn about this? And I did, I went through this, like we went through all this stuff, we were playing around with all these different things. And then I asked them, I said, how did I find this article? And they were like, well, you just, you know, you looked it up. I was like, yeah, but I didn't know what it was called. I didn't know this. And I was like, what did I look up? And they were like, you know, and I had my computer out and I was showing them stuff. Betsy DeVos this. Nope, Betsy. De Finally, somebody was like, did you just say that she was great? I was like, I sure did. <laughs> you know, so we give ourselves what we think we want to learn by reading stuff, by watching stuff, by listening to stuff. But in so doing, because of that algorithm, because of the d data mining, because of the digital footprint, 
even if we consider ourselves very well read, we get put into a category. We get put into a box, which means it might be a nice category, right? It might be a category where you're like, yeah, that is how the world should run. That is what I agree with. But it means that we're missing so much. It means that we're missing so much. It means that we're shortchanging ourselves. And for those of us who are working in classrooms, it potentially means that we're shortchanging our students. I happen to work at a pretty liberal institution. The conservative students do sometimes feel left out because most of us are more liberal. That's not exactly fair to them. They're 18, 19, 20. They deserve to have a variety of information. Ideally, none of it hate-based, right? None of it cruelty-based. But who am I to say you have to believe what I believe, right? There's like the, the whole idea of like the sage on the stage. Nah, we've we've moved past that. Our classrooms should be opportunities for us to engage in a variety of viewpoints to collaboratively collaboratively build learning together. If I dictate to my students what they're to think, then I'm part of the problem too. Mm. I love that. You know, what really strikes me as an issue hearing about this is the way that the algorithm can kind of pigeonhole you. And at a certain point, it, it kind of brings you like you're stuck in an ideological viewpoint. And with the amount of polarization that's happening right now in our country and a lot of extremism that's popping up, you know, I can see how it naturally could potentially elevate to that level and how people kind of get forced onto this this train of thought that ends up resulting in listening to someone like Nick Fuentes, uh, you know, is a known like white supremacist. And so is that kind of a part of this as well? Is that the it ramps up the potential for extremism as well? Well, I think I think there's two levels to that. Yes, it absolutely can ramp up the level of extremism, no doubt. As you know, to your words about us being pigeonholed, if you're in that space and there's no other space that you're invited to be in, then yes, absolutely. But let's also not forget that the ramped up, the hot tempers, the um, kind of wackadoo out there behavior is a way better headline, right? Mm -hmm. Any of us that have neighbors who we might be politically different from but they're still nice people they still take in our mail when we go on vacation that's not a very interesting headline you know the neighbors like throwing stuff at each other screaming at each other burning each other's flags down whatever that's a much more interesting headline than a handful of people disagreed on politics but um but they still are like petting each other's dogs when they see them on the corner. Who cares about that, right? So yes, I think there is absolutely the space for that extremism to be built up, um, to be stoked. Uh, and also the stoking of it makes for much juicier reading or listening or pictures than just people who don't agree on stuff and kind of move on with their daily lives. Yeah. So, you know, for me, it seems like one of the healthier things to do in this uh, current day and age, and this is something that I try and tell my family and a lot of people around me to do, is to plug into independent news outlets, people who are actually openly admitting their bias, people who are having this kind of conversation, who are able to talk clarity to the mechanisms of power and try and build a new, like reinforce actual proper journalism uh, and there's a lot of them out there that I think are really worthwhile. 
But for people to be able to unplug their attention from legacy media outlets and maybe their specific rabbit holes who are interested in investing some time and getting to know other independent media outlets, how can they start that process and how can they vet the folks that they're consuming to make sure that they're also okay? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think one thing that uh, I would I would suggest we all, myself included, strive for is to try and pay attention to local journalism, right? Um, there's a place for legacy media. There's a place for national media. But most of us don't live in that national space, right? Uh, what What's going on in your community? What's going on in your zip code, right? I mean, maybe you live in a pretty hot zip code and, and the national, the legacy media is, in fact, your local news. Like I said, I grew up in Washington, D, outside of Washington, D.C., so the Washington Post was the local paper, right? I spent a lot of years in New York City. The New York Times was the local paper. Uh, but think, for those of us that aren't living in those places, think about ways that you can support your local journalism, your local community information. Um, so much of our our big picture politics or big picture policies grow up from our communities. So how can we be more invested in our communities, right? If we really do want to see change happen on a national level, it's not going to happen like just because, right? Even if it's a good idea, it's just not going to happen just because. What's happening in our town? What's happening in my local community? So trying to start there. Um, I think one way of vetting independent journalism, particularly if you live in a community that doesn't have much local journalism, because that's absolutely, I mean, local journalism is being slashed and burned. There's no doubt about it. Um, luckily, there is a really robust online digital, uh, in, independent digital space. The way that you vet it is, I mean, in some ways, the, the, the simplest way to vet it is, does their website make sense, right? <laughs> like, does it actually end in a .com or a .org or a .net or a .whatever versus then trailing off into something else? Is there like a Google or a Gmail kind of hidden in that URL? Is their website clear? Do they have an about us page, right? And that doesn't make them perfect by any stretch of the imagination because people can cover up a lot by telling you something else. But trust, you know, trust yourself to say like this website looks, this, this, this website name looks kind of sketchy, right? Start to get to know reporters, start to get to know journalists. If there's somebody whose position you value, why is it that you value their position? Do some fact checking, which is often about us leaving the site. I don't need to hang out on this site. This site I know is going to tell me these things, but who are these people? And how do I, how can I judge whether or not they are coming to this from a position of um, good intent and honesty. And know that, of course, any single one of us as human beings, we're going to make mistakes. The best reporter on the planet is going to screw something up at some point. What's the intention? What's the motivation? Um, you know, what's, what is the financial backing? Where is this money coming from? Look at plenty of websites can have an about us and not tell you that their money is in oil or their money is in big pharma or their money is in um, 
you know, fracking or something like that. So I don't mean to be naive and say, oh, they have that. It's good to go. But you, you got to do a little bit of digging. And sometimes the digging happens offsite. Um, there's a great organization that I would really strongly recommend. It's called Project Censored. Um, easy website, projectcensored.org. In full disclosure, I'm on the board of the Media Fa Freedom Foundation, which supports Project Censored. But they have, especially if you have any listeners who are educators, um, it's a really great project that you can do with students. It's called the Verified Independent News Stories. And what Project Censored has done is provided a list of solid independent news organizations. And then I do this with my students all the time. Every semester I do this with my students where they have to pick something that they're in, a topic that they're interested in get the research from the independent press, recognize that it is not being told or being undertold or poorly told by the mainstream press, by the legacy press, and then they write a news story. And so they get oodles of skills with this, right? They learn how to be better researchers. They learn how to dig through information and to evaluate information. They get published, which is great for their own professional development. And they learn a bunch of media that they just didn't know before. And I could stand in the front of my classroom and yammer on about this all day about how valuable it is, but this is the learning by doing, right? Yeah. So do that as, as just a good old fashioned reader. Get You don't have to write a VINs, but learn your own experiences. It's going to take a little bit more time. It's going to slow us down. And chances are, we're probably going to learn less, but maybe learn it more. <laughs> yeah. One thing yeah. that our current media environment does, um, particularly our social media, is it encourages us to do so much more and to do it super quickly. Scroll, 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 scroll. Headlines, headlines, cute puppy pics, cute cat pics, all that sort of stuff. But how much did we actually learn from that? How much did we actually really invest in it? And we can spend hours scrolling without having actually done much. How about if we spend some of that time scrolling less and digging a little bit more? And once we find somebody or some organization or writer or something that really um, speaks thoroughly to us, uh, stick with that learn more from that really d dive in uh our like i said our current media environment is super invested in us getting a real superficial look at things and going through a great quantity of superficial how about we dig deeper into a little bit less yeah. and also it's okay to not know stuff right if if i really want to engage in that project if I'm kind of new to this and I really want to engage in that project, I also have to be okay with the fact that now I'm not going to be able to speak to every headline. I might not know what's happening all over the place, even on a superficial level. And that's okay. That's okay. Yes, it's. I think personally as a human being that it's important to be you know, informed and up on current events, but not at the expense of my ability to understand those current events, not at the expense of my ability to thoroughly investigate them, and certainly not at the expense of my stress levels, because the more we spend time with the, I mean, I know, I'm trained in this, and I know that the juicier the headline, it's, it's about getting my eyeballs on it. I know that pretty well. And I still am like, whoa, I need, <laughs> this is a little much, right? Yeah. God, take a day off. 
just be yeah. off of it for a minute, for a day, whatever. If if it if your work really depends on being up on current events and taking a day off from that is going to harm you professionally, then an afternoon, the evening when you get home from work, the day that you're not working, something so that you can just give your your neurological pathways a little bit of a stress reliever. Yeah. Yeah, what I think is really important is that oftentimes when we chronically consume media, I find that it takes away our agency because there's so much happening. We've never had access to this much information of what's happening across the world. And when you're just inundated with so much content and so much bad news, you lose your ability to like have a say or have any sort of action in it. And that can be really demoralizing. So I really like this idea of spending more time with one thing, because even if you're not going to change the outcome of a situation, you're at least learning and expanding your own capacity to understand that specific topic so that in the future you can better understand when something similar comes up and then you can communicate it more skillfully and you're not going to be just awash in the emotional response of it you know and i think that most people i talk to i'm, I'm kind of an island in my uh, community in terms of pay, actively paying attention to the news because so many people are just so distraught and it's just so uncomfortable to be with what's happening in the world and yeah i think agency is is really one of the biggest things that people feel like they lack yeah yeah i mean it is i'm not i'm not i would never be so delusional or so naive to say like it's not really that bad out there no it's dark days yeah it's dark days out there but it is it is dark days that deserve um deep attention and when we scroll and when we skim, we're making our own days darker, right? Because that's that's what's making those folks a lot of money is the knowledge uh, that and, and the mechanisms for us to just go through it quickly, right? Uh, I, I would not say that it's not dark days. Um, I, I would obviously suggest that at any point you can take a walk around the block, get some fresh air grab a dog on a leash, you know, because that's just like, that can bring the, the heart rate and the brain rate down really, really in a good way. Um, but if we can spend more time with less and understand things more thoroughly, it's the, the, the doom and gloom does not have to wash over us in such a way. And recognize too that the doom and gloom makes other people money. It makes other people money. If you don't want to live in the land of doom and gloom, which is understandable, you can also back away from it in a in a, you know, economic way. I don't yeah. want my eyeballs and therefore my time and therefore my dollars contributing to this doom and gloom. Yeah. So how do we find the balance? Cuz I'm always a, an advocate of like like it is really difficult out there right now. And I think that there is a role that our attention does play in making it better, just knowing what's happening. But again, like you're saying, you know, we notice this with COVID a lot, especially when people were all pent up in their house and everybody's looking at the news every day, just glued to it. That's where the term doom scrolling came from, you know, came from that era. 
you know, like how can we find a balance between staying informed and not falling into despair? Yeah, no, that's, I mean, I think that is a question that we have to ask ourselves every day. I don't think there's a switch, right? I don't think it's, I don't think I could sit here honestly and say, well, the way that we don't fall into despair is we spend an hour doing this, right? Not, that's impossible. Um, it's, it's funny, our language, right? We can talk about how we spend too much time with the media. Uh, what is that? how do we quantify what too much time is? And one presumes that if we spend too much time, then we could conceivably spend too little time. Or maybe there's a kind of Goldilocks just right amount of time. So I think the way that we find balance is going to be challenging and difficult and something we have to practice all the time. Um, and, and again, I... I am trained in this. This is what my education is, and I still have to work really hard for it, right? One of the things that happened at the very beginning of COVID for, for me in particular was I was certainly, my stress levels were going up. I was I was deeply nervous. Um, I have elderly relatives. Um, I have a spouse who had to go to work, like all this sort of stuff. And then I sat myself down, and I was like, self, <laughs> slow down. I lived in New York City on 9-11. I didn't live in lower Manhattan. I was a graduate student at NYU. And I remember that I, um, it was a rare time in my life, actually, that in that time in my life where I actually owned a television. I was a broke grad student. Like, I don't know, I must have found it by the side of the road or something. And I was very nervous and very scared as everybody was. And I remember leaving my television on thinking that like, just in case, uh, just in case. And then I was not sleeping. And I was like, what am I doing? No, this has got to be turned off. If there's a just in case, I will learn about it. Like, I will learn about it. Uh, I am safe or as safe as I'm going to be. My family knows that I'm safe. Let's let this go. So when COVID hit, I was like, remember that? <laughs> remember that? That television viewing that just was too stressful. And I tried to do that with COVID, with the early COVID news. was like, I'm going to kind of step away from this. I'm going to walk the dog. It's actually okay to be outside, right? Um, I'm going to try and get a breather from this and try and step away from some of this. And then when I'm anxious or when I'm stressed, I'm also going to just sit with that and let myself be anxious and stressed because it's so counterproductive to be like don't be stressed (laughs) don't be anxious i do love all the advice about like it's really important to lower your stress levels i agree with that 100 percent. actually doing that can be really hard so don't don't be yeah go ahead and be stressed but sit with it hang out with it what is that what's going on with that get to know yourself a little bit um and so to find the balance with our media is what is going to make us feel we, I think, you know, we spend enough time that we'll know what the line is. What's going to make us feel productive? What's going to make us feel guilty? What's going to make us feel kind of ashamed? Let's not do that. As much as possible, let's not do that, right? Try and find a balance between the digital and the not digital, right? Between the staying informed and the not staying informed. The staying informed and the turning of it off, right? Mm-hmm. Um Easier said than done. I certainly don't want to pretend like it's an easy thing, but I think it's a it's a daily thing. Or maybe if your work life, if your professional life has enough of a routine, maybe it's a weekly thing, right? That you have a, a Saturday and a you have a kind of a traditional work schedule. You work Monday through Friday. Maybe take Saturday to just not be informed, right? To just let it go and give yourself a little bit of not electronics. Maybe that's not going to work for you. Maybe it's better to do it on it. 
whatever. But like, we have to kind of constantly work at it. I know for me, it's often like seasonal because I teach in higher education. Um, I have a sort of, you know, September through December, January through May, sort of like really busy time. And then it's like, I try and make the waves counteract that so that I give myself that brain break in June, maybe that brain break the end of December to the beginning of January, something where I can just kind of let it go and bring, um, bring that stress level down, uh, bring the, that anxiety down. Mm. When I, when there's not pressure to be doing that, doing the work that I want to be really informed about for as best as possible. Wow. That's very helpful. And that's something I feel like a lot of people need to hear because there is kind of almost sometimes a sense of guilt in not paying attention to what's going on. And I I think we really do kind of ride ourselves pretty hard in terms of, especially with a lot of the conversation on, um, you know, just all the different justice endeavors that we have in the country, which are very worthwhile, very good, but there almost does kind of become this sense of like, I really need to be on the game, any new information that comes out, any new news story. I, if I don't have like a statement, if I don't have something prepared to show my support, then it can be really uh, damaging to one's mental health, you know? So I I like that idea of learning how to unplug uh, creatively and skillfully. Yeah. And, and I think with, with our, you know, with those of us who are invested in some capacity with social justice is also learning how to be the best ally that you can be. That's not necessarily for me to determine, right? If my thing is, my thing is critical media literacy, right? That's my, that's my work. That's my, that's my main focus. But I don't think that that makes other people's work less important. But it's also not my work to take on. So how can I be, tell me, whatever your work is, how can I be the best ally to you? How can I support you within the thing that I know how to do so that I can do it best and be a support to you? And then I don't have to take on that other, it's not mine to take on, but it can be mine to support. And that's, that sort of, da- and I wouldn't, I wouldn't ask somebody necessarily to take on critical media literacy, but I'd say, Hey, maybe you could think about this, or maybe we could share a conversation. And that way we're not trying to take on everything all at once, all the time. <laughs> yeah. I like the idea of s- specializing in something and then allowing that to filter into each of these different avenues in its own unique way. And I think that really is the way forward is we all have to, it's a multidisciplinary situation yes. and everybody's got their niche. Uh, but yeah, we are already at time. This was really fast. <laughs> uh, Allison, thank you so much for joining me. This was such an informative conversation. Uh, I want to open up the floor for you to share uh, how other people can keep in touch with you or if they're interested in diving a little bit deeper into some of these principles, how can they do so if they're not at your university? Sure, sure. Yeah, so I'm at I'm at UMass Amherst in Western Massachusetts. I think I'm pretty easy to be found through um, the Department of Communication. So if anybody has any questions or follow-up, um, I run a small grassroots organization that focuses on teacher education and media literacy. So if you have any educators who are looking to bring this stuff into their classrooms, um, let me know. Uh, 
colleagues of mine and I just uh, published a book called The Media and Me, a guide to critical media literacy for young people. So if you're looking, um, if you're a K through 12 teacher or a parent who's looking to try and figure out how to bring uh, more media awareness to your the young people in your world, uh, not only do we want to be able to work with teachers um, in this book, but we're looking for ways to um, to support teachers by bringing these books to their classrooms, right? We understand that K through 12 teachers' budgets are slim to none um, and that they have way too much on their plates to begin with. We've got a lot of support to be able to give a lot of these books away. So let me know if we can get these books to your classrooms. And also we are so aware that teachers have way too much on their plates. We're not asking you to reinvent your lesson planning. We're not asking you to reinvent your curriculum. We're saying we're going to help you with the media literacy part of it and what you're already doing because we want to see media literacy fused across the curriculum, not a reinvention, not a brand new thing. We got a lot of stuff ready to go. Let us know how we can help you and make it easier for you. Wonderful. And I'll share all those links as well. So Thanks. in the description, it's such a radical thing. I just want to say that, like, I don't know if you like recognize how forward thinking this is. And I just think it's so important in this day and age. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right, Allison. Thank you so much for joining me. This was such a treat. Uh, we'll catch you next time. Sounds good. All right, my friends, thank you so much for listening all the way through until the end. I really do make this show for you. That was Dr. Allison Butler. If you want to keep in contact with her platform, consider checking out her newest book, The Media and Me. You can find that wherever you find your books. And maybe also through a Google search, you could just see some other podcasts she's been on and continue this uh, education because it really is so vitally important, no pun intended with the name of the show, uh, to just understand how information gets disseminated. It is so crucial in this day and age, especially with another election year coming up. I just think it's uh, very, very important and it's an act of compassion for yourself and others. If you want to support this show, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can subscribe over on YouTube, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, do all the things. It helps me see that you're there and uh, helps keep the show going. So thank you so much for tuning in. We will catch you in another couple of weeks.